The great comparative literature and mythology professor Joseph Campbell once said, follow your bliss and don't be afraid. And doors will open where you did not know they were going to be. The spirit of the podcast is to learn how former Wego Wildcats followed their bliss and for us to get inspired and learn from their stories. Welcome to Wego Places. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at West Chicago High School since 2001. Today's guest is Brian Berger, class of 2013. Brian graduated from University of Indiana with a degree in sound production and design. Currently, Brian lives in Los Angeles and works at Buffalo 8 Studios as a sound engineer to many Hollywood films. Brian also co-founded a recording label, 1212 Records, and has released two albums of original music, Tiny Towns and Still Life with Prudence. Link to his label and Spotify will be posted in the show notes. Please welcome Brian Berger. Today we welcome Brian Berger, class of 2013 of WeGo. Brian, what is it that you do? Hi. Um, so I am a uh, sound editor slash supervising sound editor slash re-recording mixer in Los Angeles for feature films. Wow, that's that's uh, that's a lot. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> Brian, what are the things? Uh, so tell us about how your path got you from West Chicago and how did you get to Los Angeles and all the things that you're working on? Yeah, sure. So um, kind of by the time I like got to the end of being at West Chicago, I knew I was, I wanted to be involved in something creative with audio. Um, I'd been in bands since middle school and I, I really loved that. Um, and so I, I joined, I applied and got into the program at Indiana University, which is a music-based program. Most, I feel like most colleges, most schools with like an audio program are music-based. Um, but even early on at IU, kind of in, in the first couple of weeks, my, my mind was like, you know, I really love filmmaking and I love, I'm just like a film buff. I really love that stuff. And like, how, is, is it a potential career path? for me to be able to apply like what I love about audio and what I love about film together. Um, so it was kind of always a thought in the back of my head. And in college, my sophomore year, I took a, I took a film class um, that I really loved. It, it was the first time like I actually got to create an edit and put sound into like a short film or something like that. Um, and pretty much right away, I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I'm going to pursue as a career. Um, for sure. I mean, I, it was just it was, there was something about like seeing seeing the way like sound can bring to life like a moment in such like a, a rich way. Like working with with picture and then putting that in was. Do you remember really what movie was that kind of sealed the deal for you, or what series of films that uh, made you see uh, film in such a way? Um, yeah, I well, it's funny because I remember the first time I I thought about it in in terms of myself was like the first project we did. Uh, and it was a stupid, it was like a stupid, simple, like 30 second thing. We just had to like go outside and record someone like, it was like throwing a Capri Sun pouch, like across a field. And we had to do like three edits, like three cuts of it. And I remember the sound, like putting in the sound of the Capri Sun hitting the grass and being like, whoa, that all of a sudden like looks real. That sounds like it, that really happened like in that moment. Um, and I remember being thrilled by the idea of like putting sound in afterwards like not recorded on set, just like the idea of essentially fully um, mm. could be so powerful, even in such a little moment, like, wow, expand that into something like a bigger movie, a bigger idea, a bigger scene. 
and it was really powerful. And I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I just kind of like something kind of clicked there. Yeah. You traveled to England for, was it a year or a semester? What was that experience like? Yeah. So that was, um, it was a, it was a summer, it was like a summer semester abroad and at, at, at IU in the school of music, there wasn't really, especially in my program, there wasn't really a lot of study abroad programs, um, especially something audio based. It's kind of like, there's not a lot of like sister schools in other countries that have an audio program. Uh, so I was trying to like find the, like any, you know, any way I can get into a program abroad. And, and I was minoring in film and they had a, like a script writing class. Uh, in London. So I kind of jumped on that <laughs> as kind of like a, it was a little bit of a stretch to my degree, but I really just wanted to do it. Um, and it was really great. I mean, it was, it, it's interesting to see another country's process of, of making films. We're so used to the Hollywood kind of standard. Um, being in London was really cool. I mean, it, it showed how much the government funds a lot of films, um, which is really cool. The BFI British Film Institute does a lot with like really awesome films like the King's Speech and, and things like that. Um, and it just kind of showed like how much more, how much like great films, like foreign films could be a thing. And um, there we studied not only, you know, British films, but also foreign films that like I would never have kind of thought of before. So you finished at IU. How did you then hook into the career that you have in Los Angeles? Yeah, so that was, um, it was one of those things that like, t towards the end of my, my time at IU, I, it was one of like, there's two places you can go and it's New York and LA to do the thing I really want to do. Um, and they always say LA's got, for every two jobs in LA, there's one in New York. So um, I kind of always assumed I was going to be in LA. Um, and so I graduated and I just moved out there. I mean, without a job, with with hardly any leads, I just knew I, I kind of had to be out there to be able to do what I wanted to do. And I, I figured I would just get out there and grind as hard as I could until until something worked out. Um, which in hindsight now it seems way crazy. It seems terrifying. Like I don't know if I would do that now. Uh, but when I graduated college, I was like, yeah, this is what this is what I have to do. So Brian, when you say grind it out, can you like? Can you describe what that looks like? Because that, that sounds like, I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, clearly it was a risk. However, when you say grind it out, like, how did you then approach studios and how did you show them that you had this skill set and experience to knock down the door in order to get the job? Yeah, so the, the summer before I, I left, so I graduated in May and spent a summer kind of saving up, um, working like three jobs. Uh, in Bloomington, where where IU is, and uh, I applied to like maybe like thirty to forty places like every month. Just studios, just sending out my resume, sending out the work I had done. Um, just knowing it was kind of like a studios out here, especially are like a it's the right time, right place. So I thought I'd send it out to everywhere and see if somewhere kind of aligned, you know, an opening aligned when I was reaching out. Um, but it didn't, and I, and out of my way my drive out to LA, I'd got um, an opportunity from um, a friend of mine that I'd interned with. Cause another thing that like is really important, probably anywhere, but especially Los Angeles is, is networking and like reaching out to everyone that, you know, like everyone that you know, that has an uncle that has a brother that works in the industry uh -huh, you want right. um, just to try to figure out like, 
you know, how, how you can get sometimes kind of your foot in the door. And so it was like my, someone that interned with their uh, roommate, there was an open position at a music studio, which wasn't really my intention originally, but I thought, okay, well, I need to, I need to start somewhere. Um, so I started at a studio called Aftermaster, um, working under Shelly Akis, who's really awesome. He recorded and mixed John Lennon's Imagine, a bunch of Tom Petty records. Um, he's like a, he's like a rock and roll hall of famer, um, for engineering and mixing. He's really great. Um, yeah, so, so I was out there for a couple months in that studio and, um, wasn't really getting paid, um, uh, much, you know, just enough. And I, I was kind of found out pretty quickly that the music studio wasn't where I wanted a career to be. Um, it's just like really crazy hours and you kind of have to, I don't know, record whoever comes through the door. And if it's music you don't like, it's just, it's just a lot of, uh, unless you're really passionate about recording music, um, other people's music. And I, you know, I, I like recording my own music, but, uh, I realized pretty quickly it wasn't what I wanted to do. And a couple months in, I got an opportunity. I think it was, this was November. I got a call to be an assistant editor at a, at a place I'd applied to in like May. So like, you know, six, like five months previous. Um, wow. Yeah. So yeah, that was like, Oh, I was like, wow, I'm glad I applied to all those places because you never know when they're like, yeah, we have an opening and we had your resume on file. Well, that's just great advice. The fact that you fanned out so many resumes because you knew that, you know, maybe. All right. So tell me about how, what's the next step for that. Yeah. So um, I started as like an assistant editor, um, kind of like studio assistant at um, a post place called um, RDR, which they did really cool stuff. They did like Get Out. Um, they did um, a couple of big movies like that. And uh, I kind of learned. I went from knowing like my like how to do what I did in like a, a student film aspect to seeing like what really it, the workflow of like a professional full post-production house um, kind of does things, which was, was really beneficial. I wasn't really like, you know, touching the mixing board as much as I wanted to, but I, I kind of very quickly learned the process because um, it's a very complicated and technical process um, more so than I had thought. And it, it required kind of a lot of like shadowing and watching and um, around being there for a couple months, I started to see kind of the negative signs of, there's not that many clients coming through the door and we're in this big building in Beverly Hills and most people are just kind of sitting around all day. So I saw kind of these red flags of like, yeah, I, I know this, this, there's no way like we can continue with this few clients. So I started reaching out to smaller post houses that did kind of small indies and, and whatnot to see if I could, you know, advertise myself as like, okay, now I want to be a sound editor, not an assistant sound editor. I've learned that. I want to be a sound editor for smaller films. Um, and I, I received an interview for where actually where I work now, which is Stan Sound in Hollywood. And uh, they were like, yeah, we need a sound editor for a film. Just kind of came up. Can you do it? And two days later, my old company went under. Um, so it kind of worked out. <laughs> in a way. You, you saw the canary in the coal mine for sure. I was pretty candid totally. of you to see that. Yeah. Totally. So I started working here and did a couple, two films as a, just a sound effects editor. And after the second one, they were like, oh, you know, you seem like you work pretty well with clients. Um, you're pretty personal. Would you want to be, try to supervise some of our smaller ones? And kind of from there, I've just been 
supervising sound sound editing for um I guess almost a year now here and then this past 2019 I've started mixing um which are two separate entities that people get those confused all the time uh, sound editing and sound mixing but um sound mixing was kind of where I I had always seen myself so um yeah I was I was super lucky that it just um you know we had, we we had a lot of we had a lot of cool movies cool clients come in and um, I just worked really hard on them and have been so, able to now do what I do. If I were to ask just a, a follow-up question, how many uh, films ha- have you worked on since you started there? I think maybe around maybe around 30 now. Um, wow. Now, let's say a, a normal movie short. comes in, like uh, about an hour and a half to a two-hour movie comes in and it's dropped in your lap. What's the process to do what you do it does what's what's the hour to hour or how long would that project take for you to finish your job yeah i mean that's it's all about uh how much money they have because uh I, we would love a really long time and oftentimes we get a very very short amount of time um which is uh yeah i mean that, that's tough i mean for some films it's a month to two months for some films it's eight days um wow which yeah yeah we've you know we've done you know 15 16 17 hour days to get stuff out um because like i I think everything that i work on and as well as like my sound designer works on we really want regardless of the budget or the time to put out something that like we think is impactful and like really is emotional to the director's vision of whatever it is um but it's a long process you know we we go through and do a dialogue edit. We so we clean up all the dialogue. We add footsteps. We add birds chirping in the background. We add um, everything you can imagine that happens on screen that's not being spoken out of someone's mouth. We either record or cut from sound libraries and things like that. Um, so it's a, it can be a very tedious process sometimes to what, really what's be been able the most original that thing that you've had to do that was not cut from a sound li- library. Um, let's see. Um, we had to do, this was pretty fun. And we did one, uh, a film that's coming out, um, pretty soon. I think it just wrapped mixing. And there's a scene where a character is being drowned in the bathtub by a, a ghost essentially. And, uh, the splashing and I mean, it was just all this thrashing that is just too specific to cut from a sound library. When things get more specific, it gets more difficult. So we, um, yeah, we just like rolled up our sleeves and put a bunch of tarps out and just like went crazy in this um, like tub filled of water, um, which was pretty cool. For for Sparrow Creek, one of the films that we did, um, the sound designer and I went out to a gun range and recorded um, uh, assault rifles and pistols and things like that, which is pretty fun too. I saw a standoff at Sparrow Creek, and I would I would without batting an eye say it was probably one of my favorite movies I've seen within the past year. The suspense of it was just masterful and your work on the sound design was brilliant. I mean, I, I huge recommendation for all any of our listeners to go uh, catch that m- movie that you can get. Uh, I, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but I, I got it on uh, Amazon prime when I watched it. It was brilliant. Brian, it was awesome. Thank so, you. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. They, they have a team did a really cool job on it. Ah, such a great movie. So, all right. So that's your film work. Now let's kind of transition from that. You are also a musician. You, you do now, are you, you have solo work 
but, but you're not in a band, but you also have a record label. So let's, let's talk about your music aspirations and, and what you do uh, as well with that. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, when I was in, when, when I was in college, I played, um, a lot of shows. It, Bloomington was like a really amazing community that like had just so many shows every weekend. It was a, it was a very, um, house show oriented community. So basement shows were like a really popular thing. Um, so there's a lot of bands playing in basements, packed basements, you know, you, you couldn't even get that amount of kids out to a bar. It was, it was always really cool. Um, and we ended up our junior and senior year. I lived with, um, musician friends as well. And our house became a house show venue. Uh, it was called Dose Dose because it was, uh, the address was 1212. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So every like house has like its own like little name. Um, and so we were just throwing shows there probably once a month. And it, I mean, it would be packed. We would have tons of kids just filled up in the basement. And it was such a great opportunity for people to play in front of a crowd, um, without having to worry about ticket sales or draws and things like that. Um, so we got the joy of doing that, but we also got to provide that for like local bands, um, which was always a big thing. So, um, when I moved out to LA and, you know, continue to play shows, um, I haven't played a show in a bit, but we've been working on music and that kind of thing. Um, but the idea of kind of that house show culture, um, kind of led this idea of, of myself and, um, two other friends to start a record label kind of based around this idea of, um, just being like, wow, we are, there's a lot of bands. There's a lot of great underrepresented bands that we love that don't really know how to put out a record or, or struggle with that, that concept, the kind of busy work of that. And we just want to hear these songs like in people's ears kind of thing. Oh, that's so when you uh, approach an artist or a band, how do you know that they have it and like that because i mean it's one thing when you hear maybe a, their demo but there's also the live performance of it like in your estimation of like of what you hear or what you see um how do you know that they have that special quality yeah i think it's just um because we get a fair amount of demos sent to us and and even finished records and stuff and i think when all three like all three of us so i, I have a um Colin Thomas and Annie Skirtick are two, uh, two of like the co-founders of the label. When we're all equally excited about something that we just, I just sticks out, right? It's like, I want to listen to this again. Like, I, I need to listen to this again. I, 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 like, I'm not trying to just get through it, you know, like, oh, okay, what's the next one? What's the next one? It's like, you know, you're just really excited. I mean, in a similar way to how, how you get excited about new music from other artists that just come out, like come onto your playlist or something like that. Um, like a Spotify curated playlist or something. It's uh, just, I, I guess you kind of just know. Um, and there's also, it's strange because like we're a small label and what we tell artists before we sign any contracts is like, if you have, if you want an opportunity with a bigger label, like, you know, we can provide to an extent a certain amount of things. But if you really have like, you're in talks with a bigger label, that's more of your vision, like don't sign with us. Um, we kind of target like, bands that we think are really amazing that we think we could truly get more listeners and, and put out their record in like a, a positive way. Would you say just from an industry standpoint, how do you feel that is the, is there still a room for physical sales of units, like in terms of vinyl or CDs uh, or, and, and to some extent purchasing of MP3s 
versus the revenue stream from streaming. How have you made adjustments? If this is your, your label is now maybe one or two years old, how have you shipped? You, you must have shifted from the maybe the older model of how records have come out to maybe accommodate how things are now. How did you how do you anticipate the the future of music distribution as a as a label? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tricky because while like digital streaming platforms is obviously like the number one way people listen, um, it's just it's so non-lucrative. I mean, even artists that are getting, you know, tens of thousands of streams, hundreds of thousands of streams just really aren't making any money off of it. Um, really, the the way artists are, are making any type of money is physical sales at shows. So touring, touring artists that are selling physical, that's where like most of the money comes from, mm. um, as far as like actually selling your record. So, but it's expensive, like CDs and vinyl are really expensive. We, we actually don't do CDs or vinyl, we just do tape. Um, that we include a free digital copy with. So it's almost like, you know, someone's going to have to show they like a band. They're going to spend money on something that's like a physical thing that they can hold that even if they don't really use or listen to much, it's like their way of kind of supporting the band and having like a, having something that they could like look at like a year later and be like, Oh yeah, I remember when I saw these guys um, kind of thing. But it's strange, you know, I, I wish, you know, I know there was kind of recently, there was a bunch of artists protesting some, um, Spotify and kind of some of their new guidelines of percentage of giving to artists. And it's, it's tough because Spotify is great for exposure. Um, for new artists, you know, people listen to artists, you know, across the country that they would have never heard before, but it's not great um, for artists that aren't getting, you know, 10 million streams kind of thing. I remember seeing a tweet years ago from, I don't remember. Uh, it was someone from uh, the band, Portishead, and he brought the receipts in terms of how much his music, their music had been streamed via YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, and whatnot. And it was in the millions of times streamed. And for all of that exposure, it still basically was like a $3,000 check out of being streamed yeah. that much. I mean, it really is, you're absolutely right, a very tough model to be sustainable for the artist uh with the percentages that they get for sure yeah totally so brian what are you working on now um so right now we're doing uh i'm working on three films now and i think another one starting next week um they're all cool uh i would get this past the past focus of the past two weeks has been um glenn danzig who's the the lead singer and founder of the misfits he um, owns a a comic um, uh, like like a like a comic company called Verotica, and they're doing uh, and he just finished shooting his his film based off that comic. So um, I've been the supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer for that one, um, which is cool because I get to I get to hang out with Glenn Danzig, who is someone that like I I, I listened to in in high school and I, I saw live in college and that kind of thing. Ah, uh, cool. Um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a pretty trippy movie. It's cool though, and uh, then we're starting um, a Bruce Willis film next week called Trauma Center, which is just kind of like a thriller, um, thriller action kind of film, which is pretty cool. So um, that's kind of what's happening on the movie side of things. Um, on the record label Twelve Twelve Records, we just put out a band called Parkway in Columbia, 
uh, we put out their second record. Um, it's called Wanderer. It's really, really good. Um, they're getting like a, a lot of really positive feedback from it. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really cool. It's kind of like an indie alternative kind of record, but it's really, it's really awesome. So we're kind of focusing on pushing that one. Um, and then musically, I've just finished kind of recording a new album I've been working on for about a year. And I'm kind of like, we're kind of at the end stages of mixing it. So we're hoping to see, see that coming out in the next few months. That's so, so busy. <laughs> um, Brian, last question uh, for you. What are some of your tips for success, words of wisdom for our, our listeners and uh, current WeGo Wildcats? Sure. Yeah, I think... Um, I think the best thing I can say is, is maybe something a little cliche, but um, like really finding finding what you love to do um, is just incredibly important because if you really love something, you're going to work so much harder at it. I mean, I, I go into work and I, I like love doing, I love mixing and I love sound editing so much that like I obsessively listen to geeky podcasts of how to get better on my way to and from work. Um, I'm constantly reaching out to, to mixers and editors that I idolize about tips and, and things like that. And I just, I see myself getting better and, and the growth every day because of how passionate I am about it. Um, and it, it never feels like work. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade doing this for, for pretty much anything. Um, you know, and I think the only way to get good at something and to advance in something is, is, is just an insane amount of work. And, it's hard to do when you don't love it, you know? And so if, if you can truly find something that you love to do um, and you find a way to make it sustainable, then stick with it and just find every way to get better at it because you're going to enjoy the process. That's great advice. I mean, that it's, it's so true where you were able to align your creative endeavor with the spirit of kind of disposition and discipline at the same time to get it all done. Um, that was uh, spot on, man. That was great. Brian, thank you so much for being generous with your time uh, with this. I've been, uh, it's been so interesting catching up with you and following you uh, and all of your creative efforts been great. throughout the years. So this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I love being able to talk about this stuff. So, yeah, great. Uh, I, I, I bet you know in a couple of years if this if this project keeps going, I'm gonna I'm we're gonna we're gonna have this conversation again. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great, Brian. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to We Go Places. If you know of a great guest for this podcast, send me an email at b-t-u-r-n-b-a-u-g-h at d94.org. Music provided by Joe Villacat.